Hey everyone, and welcome to the show. It's Alex Patterson, Executive Director of Canada 2020 and co-founder of The Recovery Project. Today in the program, I am talking about what recovery means to Canada's natural resource sector. A sector, I should add, that was already undergoing a tremendous transformation before the pandemic. In response to this moment, various task forces and policy groups have emerged with their own specific view on how this moment should be used. And while there's different lenses you can place on whatever your recommendations are, I think there's a general acknowledgement that both the public and the private sector can work together to accelerate change and accomplish big things. I mean, it's how you get slogans like Build Back Better. But for Canada's natural resource sector and the task force for real jobs and real recovery, building back better means returning to a world already moving quickly towards the future. And fighting climate change, reducing emissions, investing in renewable energy, and meeting international commitments loom front and center in any conversation about the future of Canada's natural resource sector. That's why today I am really glad to be chatting with two of the signatories of the task force. Kim Rudd, former Member of Parliament for the Good People of Northumberland, Peterborough South, and the Parliamentary Secretary for the Minister of Natural Resources, and Michel Trepanier, the President of the Quebec Provincial Building Trades Council. I hope you enjoy it. Kim, Michelle, hello to you both. Hi. Hi, Alex. Great to be here. Uh, Kim, it's good to chat with you again. Uh, Michelle, it's uh, nice to be introduced to you. Um, and I want to take uh, the time to thank you both for, for joining uh, me on the show today. Um, I want to talk about the Task Force for Real Jobs, Real Recovery that you were both involved in. Um, but, but I thought I would start our conversation um, with a question that I've been asking more and more people and I am interested in the differences in the answers that people are giving, which it, it's a simple question, but it's a big question. And, and Kim, I'll start with you. Um, what, what do you mean by recovery? Like, what do you believe recovery is? Because it's a word we're using more and more. And I'm curious, how do you come at the idea of recovery? Great question, Alex, but I don't think there really is an answer. Because this country, part of the reason is the country is so large, so diverse, um, recovery will look very different in very different parts of the country, and not just by province or territory, but community to community. And I think that's one of the, the challenges uh, that this report tackled was what does recovery look like? And I think the answer that we came up with, which I think from my perspective is, is quite a, a rational or reasonable one, is that one thing we know this country has is an abundance of natural resources. And one of the areas we know that we are known around the world for is the strength of those natural resources. So we see the recovery as being tied significantly to the success of what the natural resources economy is. So does that mean, you know, again, every community will be different. Not every community um, will uh, feel the same success uh, as other communities. But at the end of the day, if all Canadians can stand up and say, we're in at least the place we started in before COVID-19, and for some people, that we're even a better place than we were when COVID-19 started, I think that's success. 
Michelle, how do you define recovery? First of all, for me, recovery starts with a pause, a timeout. Uh, in any challenge, sometimes it's good to have uh, before recovering from something. It's just to analyze, take a break, uh, chat about it, have a discussion. And since it's a big challenge we're facing right now and we need uh, to address it the right way as Canadian, we have to take the time to analyze, to planify, to find new way of doing business. Because me, I see the recovery at the same time as opportunity. How we gonna address our challenge is at the same time an opportunity to recover from uh, the challenge we're facing. So, so I, I look at it in the positive way. Uh, like Kim was saying, we have the opportunity to have a lot of uh, natural resources. We have everything in our end. It's just how we're going to address this as Canadian, and I'm pretty sure we can win from uh, and gain a lot from uh, the recovery. You know, Kim, in in your response, you talked about um, both how how vast this country is, and but how we kind of, as a result of that, need to take a tailored approach. Um, a very regional approach, but I mean, one thing that was very clear at the start of this pandemic, whether you are, you know, West Coast to East Coast, which is that the the natural resource sector in Canada brought with it into this moment a tremendous amount of, of either challenges or was undergoing tremendous transformations and was was already dealing with its own struggles and issues. So I'm wondering, can you? level set for me and you know this firsthand as a as the parliamentary secretary to the minister of natural resources during your time in, in government and, and and outside as well give me and give our listeners a, a sense of the, the the weight of the challenge that the natural resource sector in canada brought with it into this moment well, it certainly did bring, certainly there were challenges and there continue to be challenges. Some are market driven to the and to a degree that we have no control over. Some are um, geographically driven. Some are, uh, you know, we were talking earlier on a call about some of the uh, you know, mountain pine beetle and other pests that attack our forests as an example, which, well, we have lots of research and good things that are happening to address that. The reality is it's a problem that that um, has impact. So, you know, as I, going back to what you said about the uh, vastness of our country, and I will say the diversity, I think of energy transition as an example, when we talk about natural resources, whether it's our oil and gas sector, whether it's our uranium mining and nuclear, whether it's forestry or, um, you know, those, all those, and the supply chains that go with it, there have been forces that have been pushing against, if you will, the um, the positive opportunities that these sectors have had for some time. And I think of our First Nations people who who are, are often right sort of at ground zero of some of this, uh, including climate change, who are experiencing climate change um, often more directly than those of us who live along the southern borders of our country. And so I would say that that all of those things um, that have impacted the natural resources sector have been felt again in different ways in different places. But I truly believe that what 
the bringing together of this very unique and diverse task force did was it got people talking to each other. And while they may not have generally seen uh, sort of any similarities between them, we discovered synergies between us. And those synergies, whether it's uh, looking at opportunities with grants from the federal government, SIF uh, grants or um, SHRED grants or anything that has an acronym as we know, uh, that that was something that all of the sectors um, could see themselves doing. So I'd say it, it, the, the country as a whole relies on natural resources for the success of our economy. There's just no question about it. So in order for our economy to be successful, for us to be successful post-COVID, the natural resources sector has to be a huge component of that recovery. And uh, I think that's certainly a conclusion we came to. And for folks who have read the report, um, the feedback I'm getting is they see that as a conclusion as well. Michelle, you know, it's baked right there into the title of the report and it's embedded, I think, throughout the majority of your recommendations, um, the real focus on jobs. Um, and uh, I, I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk to me a little bit about um, the I, I was actually curious because the, the lens through which you view a job in this report, you call it a real job. Can you talk to me about what a real job is because that I, I, I'm, I'm curious about the the framing there and what underpins that okay first of all for construction related job usually it's a career it's a career it's not just a one-year job usually it's a job that you're gonna have for your lifetime when we're saying that it's a well-paying job usually in this kind of industry it came with some uh, pension uh, some insurance fund there's some holidays there's some, some plus value to it it's uh, we uh, our workers are well trained also so uh, even if there's a speck of the industry that is getting slower a little bit we can uh, as qualified people we can rearrange our career in other aspects in construction we have four sector uh, residential commercial commercial uh, civil work and industrial so uh, this spec of uh, natural resources usually it's one of the highest uh, paying job in construction because the client want to have the best worker and usually they're they're willing to put the money with uh, with the salary and the condition so uh, our worker usually are the first one to go on this kind of job because they are well received and well paid so so Kim, talk to me about what's at stake here. I mean, we obviously know that without a robust recovery, there are real jobs that are at risk here in this sector. Um, so map that out for me a little bit. Like if not a robust recovery in this sector, like what does it look like? Wow, um, that's a pretty big question. And no crystal ball, of course, does anyone have. And as I said, there are some things that are completely out of control of the control, I think of the oil and gas sector. You know, when when oil uh, goes from $110 a barrel down to $50 a barrel, that was just such a huge um, hit for that sector and something out of anyone's con 
their control and certainly our government's uh, control, no matter what stripe the government is. The, you know, I personally have been up to the all sands and seen the amazing work in, in um, recovery, reclamation, um, and the work there, the innovation that they're, they're doing in terms of lowering their GHGs, et cetera, et cetera. I have had the opportunity to be at mining sites and, and up in Nunavut to see some of the really creative things that they're doing um, to make sure that um, they're managing as best they can the effects of climate change. So, so there are so many people working on making sure that we don't have that doomsday answer. Um, but the, I guess the biggest challenge is how does that all come together? How does, how do we address such diverse needs? How do we address such, um, you know, um, such an interesting mix of natural resources across the country? And, and someone said, and it's a, quite a famous quote that I won't take credit for, but you know, we can't, we can't look at where the puck is, we have to look at where the puck is going. And I think that's been one of the biggest strengths of the natural resources sector and why we have been so um, adept as a country to manage them is that the innovation is there. They're one of the most, because when you're dealing with forestry or you're dealing with mining or you're dealing um, uh, with various sectors, all those things I talked about earlier are coming at you. So you have to find new ways of doing things and doing things better. You know, uh, Michael, Michelle talked about uh, jobs. I'll just quit in the report, uh, recommendation number 18 talks about small modular reactors. And the nuclear sector in Canada is responsible for 72,000 direct and indirect jobs, all extremely well paying jobs with good benefits, as Michelle talked about. And um, you know, the refurbishments are going in Ontario in terms of the construction and the trades uh, are significant to the economy. And the benefit, of, of course, is great air. Um, but the other great benefit is uh, it produces medical isotopes, which are, you know, in in for the treatment of cancer and, and, um, and diagnoses, radiation treatment and such. But that that all came about through innovation. It started with uranium that they found in Saskatchewan that now supplies all of the um, nuclear reactors in Canada. And, and here we have the innovation and the success of this sector that has now gone in a number of different directions. And the small modular reactor, the importance to it, if you talk to the mining sector, is they see it's an opportunity for off diesel. Uh, if you talk to the oil and gas sector, they see it as an opportunity for cleaner extraction of bitumen from the oil sands. If you talk to some of the northern remote communities, it's an off-diesel opportunity. Off uh, Saskatchewan, um, you know, off coal by 2030. So I guess there, what I would say is the innovation that is already happening and needs to continue to happen, and I think that's where government plays a role in helping companies be able to to move to the next stage of innovation to give us the supports we need to to uh, be successful one of the things that we think about a lot at canada 2020 is like the role of government we often ask the question what is the role of government in x um 
you know, there's been a lot of bad, obviously, with the pandemic, but I think one of the good things that potentially is coming out of it is a greater realization that government is a vehicle by which we can get things done, help one another, support one another, etc. But beyond emergency response, Michelle, I'm wondering if you can sort of cast around to your membership a little bit. Like if you were to pull your membership right now in the trades, what do you think their answer would be to the question, what is the role of government right now? I I think I, I may have the best example uh, that's cover the issue and cover a lot of what uh, Kim was saying about the government implication. It what just happened three weeks ago about the government logo, our prime minister has uh, announced a new branch in Quebec an expectation to have a new branch. They call it the lithium battery branch. So it's a society project, a little bit like in the 60s when uh, we had to develop Hydro-Québec in the 60s. So the principle of that, we have the privilege to have some mineral inside our ground. So we have lithium, cobalt, and what's the expectation and the intention of the government? First of all, is just sending uh, a message to every investor uh, across the world, invest in Quebec. Invest in Quebec, we're going to be open to welcome you to develop some project. And th the principle of it is from extraction on some site until the building of the battery. So you have the transformation phase, you have the consumption phase, and you have the build-up phase of the battery. So the government step up another step and he's telling everybody, if you're up to it, we're gonna help you with Hydro-Quebec, Innovation Quebec, and we're gonna put some public money in the project. Just make sure that it's a added value. So the government just announced that he's going to put $1.4 billion to help and reassure investment. Just make sure that we're gonna be able to build that kind of society project. So for your question, Alex, that's the kind of the action that I'm hoping to see as a government. And we didn't have that for quite a while in Quebec. We had a lot of promise, but that is a structure added value, I think, and is going to be helpful for our people. Our industry, the industrial industry, represent for Quebec worker 15 to 20,000 worker. So direct job of construction union worker. And I, I, these numbers don't um, include engineer, architect, uh, safety guy. So the ecosystem, it's huge. But uh, I can speak only for construction worker. Our industry represents 20,000 people. So that's a lot of well-paying jobs. So, And the, the only part that the private sector can influence, the, govern, the government can put some money on infrastructure, but its other role is to reassure investment that if you're willing to put some money inside our country or inside our province, they're going to be supportive of these kind of projects that we didn't have that kind of philosophy mm -hmm, in the past. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, I, I think that's such a crucial point. I think that um, attracting new investment, but also retaining the investment we have, I mean, I, I, I know that's a big piece of this. 
Kim, I, I'm not asking you to tell any tales out of school, but I mean, you know, recently worked in governments and worked with policymakers. What weighs on the minds of policymakers when it comes to investment, uh, particularly in the in the resource sector? There's, a, I guess, there's a couple of things for me. One of the roles of government, in my opinion, is that when private sector is interested in supporting a new technology, a, um, you know, because we know that we, we can do lots with what we have right now. There's no question, and we are, uh, both uh, uh, in the private sector and in the public sector. But the reality is we need more to get to where we need to be, whether it's our 2030 commitments to Paris or whether it's our net zero to, by 2050. We can't do it with what we have. So there are technologies, innovations out there that are being supported by private investment to move them forward. The government, by contributing um, to some degree money, money is always important, no question, but it's also a signal from government. That's certainly one of the things I found in my role when I was parliamentary secretary. Um, if I was um, engaged at the International Energy Agency, for instance, uh, at that conference, the fact that Canada was there and standing on the stage and giving a speech and supporting um, the role of nuclear in clean energy, that was important. It was a signal that the Canadian government felt it was important. Minister Reagan was just at the IAEA a month or so ago and stood up and made a very powerful statement that we can't get to uh, 2050 or 20. We couldn't get to 2030 and can't get to 2050 without nuclear. So, and there are other examples. Minister Reagan has talked about uh, the oil and gas sector and the importance to our economy and, and the need to support um, that energy transition. So it doesn't mean that, as some people say, unfortunately, that it needs to go away. I don't believe that. It, there is a transition to a better product. And no one is more engaged in that than the oil and gas sector, in my experience. So I think you know, one of the things that um, 2019 budget did, I'm sure it was 2019, was the accelerated capital cost, cost allowance, which allowed a quicker write down of expenses, et cetera, et cetera, your, um, capital expenses. And industry is calling for that again, because for an extension of that, because they see that as important to helping their companies, which will allow their companies to, to commit more, more, um, more money. So the government has a role to support the private sector in the work that they're doing. And it has a, a, role, a role as a, um, as a uh, signal of support, signal of confidence, if you will, to the Canadian businesses, to the Canadian natural resources sector, by standing on the stage as Minister Reagan has done and said, we believe in this. This is important to us. It's important to the rest of the world. And we are, we are going to continue to, we, can, we produce a great product now. We're going to create an even better product for domestically and, and for the world consumption. So I think that's a huge role of government. Yes, it's about money, but it's also about, about those signals. Michelle, one of the uh, signature pieces of legislation with the current government is their net zero target by 2050. Um, 
and uh, that's that's legislation that uh, the Trudeau government is really, really driving at. Um, and there's going to be some heavy expectations on, uh, you know, emitters and, and traditional uh, players in the natural resource sector to play their part. But I, I mean, I'm, construction is a, is a huge piece of this. And I'm wondering if you can shed a little bit of light on um, your industries and, and, and the people that you work with, your approach to uh, emissions reductions and, uh, you know, contributing to the fight on climate change. Perfect. Uh, I'm going to try my best, Alex. Uh, I'm a, a boilermaker by trade. A big part of um, my job and when I was on the field, a scope of our work is anti-pollution systems. So we're doing some dust collecting, gas uh, scrubber, and there's now a new technology that uh, I think the uh, National Resources was a leader in research and development. We call it carbon capture. Carbon capture, you have three different technology that our membership uh, usually install this system. You have CCUS, is carbon capture, utilization, and storage. You have another technology that is being used is CCS, caption, uh, carbon capture and sequestration. And you have DAC. DAC, that is direct air capture. The principle of that technology, and we didn't have that 10 years ago and five years ago. And the best example I think I, I can give you in Quebec, we had a big discussion, a Quebecer discussion about the expansion and the new uh, building of the biggest cement plant in Canada, in Paul Daniel and Gaspésie, five years ago. It's one of the biggest emission of CO2 right now. And I, I just had a discussion last Friday with uh, somebody from a CCUS Research Center. And he told me that if we had to redo that cement plant as this year with that new technology, we would be able to capture 90 to 92% of the CO2. So that make a big difference. Because I think the big difference that we had issue in the past when we're talking about industrial investment or development, it was about our uh, environmental footprint. We had issue to make sure that we're able to capture uh, carbon capture. Now the technology is available. Another example I can give you in the States because since I'm a rep, also for the boilermakers, we have a lot of people in the U.S. are working on these jobs. In Canada, we have three facilities right now, but in the U.S., there's 10 facilities and 17 right now in construction. And what we're asking the committee is to have a tax incentive, like in the U.S. They call it the uh, Q45 credit tax. It's pretty simple. The government gives the industry or the factory are $35 per ton credit if they capture some carbon and they use it for shoot it in some cement or fertilizer on or use it as a product and they give 50 bucks per ton if they just store it so right now with the new technology right now it costs an average of 25 bucks 30 bucks per ton to capture that so now it's now interesting for the industry 
to make sure with that new technology, they're able not to make millions of dollars, but just to be responsible and because the technology is there. So it's a big changer, I think, for my trade and any trade in the industrial and the resource, uh, natural resource sector, because now I think it's going to be more acceptable for the, any Canadian to have a development of industrial project close to their home. So that's a big game changer that 10 years ago we didn't have. Kim, I made a note of something you mentioned earlier that I, I definitely wanted to circle back on. I mean, a huge component of uh, this is um, is Indigenous reconciliation and economic reconciliation. We've done a lot of work of that at, uh, at Canada 2020. Um, Kim, talk to me a little bit about uh, how you prioritized engaging with Indigenous communities and the, the sort of the economic reconciliation lens um, that you put on some of your task force recommendations. Well, it certainly was front and center. Um, there, Sean Willey, who used to uh, be with Cameco, uh, which is the largest uranium mining in Canada, is now um, head of Dene. I'm going. To, I'm not going to say it because I'll get it wrong. Um, economic development, and and he and I co-wrote a um, op-ed for the Financial Post, and we talked about uh, it. It's sort of it's position was about small modular reactors and nuclear, but even more than that, it was about the economic development opportunities um, that things like uh, uranium mining in northern Saskatchewan has provided uh, to Indigenous communities surrounding it. So for instance, with Cameco, a lot of their, um, their supply chain is now made up of indigenous companies that have grown uh, from the, the mining sector. And uh, I believe even their airline that flies them in now to the remote sites is an indigenous owned airline. But it's more than just being able to provide, I think this is, this is where, we, where we ended up, is it's more than just being able to provide an opportunity for economic development. It has to be about being part of the process. It has to be, um, and not just, not just to say yes or no to a, a natural resource project, but to actually be engaged partners in the project. And it's not just about um, cost benefit, agree benefit agreements that are often signed between a company and, and the First Nation. It has to be more than that. And at the end of the day, the, um, it is about ownership. It is about indigenous um, peoples being able, uh, the best example I can give is Ontario and the Wate Power, and I don't know if you're familiar with it, but Wate Power is um, a group of 15 or 16 First Nations that were not connected to the grid. They are now connected with the grid. Um, they are a partner with a large um, distribution company, and I might not get the percentage quite right, but I believe the distribution company um, owns, it wasn't 50-50, I think it was 60-40, as the process of every First Nation coming on and the new um, corporation they formed as a joint venture making money, the First Nations corporations or entity will eventually buy out um, the company and they will then wholly own this distribution um, program themselves. That's a, that's a big deal. And it's, it's being looked at in other, for other um, uh, ways to implement it in other parts of the country. 
and I guess that's the opportunity. So it's about self, um, self-economic development, the ability to be able to create um, uh, opportunities generationally and, and within, um, within First Nations and not be, um, and I, I guess I look at the forest industry. Certainly, their, uh, because of their remoteness as well, their, their engagement with First Nations has been, um, and their, their relationships they've built with First Nations have been key to their success. Um, it's it's uh, something, I think, in natural resources in Canada, we haven't always done a good job about, certainly, um, and we still can make improvements, but we're a lot better than we used to be. And we need to keep building on that. And the only way you build things is if you build relationships. Michelle, um, that was kind of going to be my lead into my question with you is that so much of this is relational. Um, and, uh, you know, first and foremost, I mean, your world is about people and it's about training and it's about developing those relationships over, as you've said, not 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 just a year, but a, but hopefully a career. Um Talk to me a little bit about your approach and, and your sector's approach to um, Indigenous economic development and, and the opportunities that you see out of this moment for, um, uh, for your sector. As uh, Kim was saying, a lot of these jobs usually uh, are not in big centre like in Montreal or Quebec. Usually uh, these are the kind of job, paper mill and uh, mining sector usually when they do these kind of job are in region where First Nation are indigenous people. And in the past, usually before our attitude as Quebecers or as anybody, we wanted to have a discussion just at the moment of the investment. And after that, we build the factory or the facility. And after that, we didn't have any other discussion. And like Kim was saying, we have to build a relationship with these people because it's really important to give them the opportunity to add a plus value to these kind of projects. I'm going to give you an example, like you try to build a mine up North Quebec. After the mine is going to be built, these are the people that are going to make sure that that kind of project going to have an added value. They're going to be there if there's another investment in construction to build houses, to build a commercial center. They're going to be qualified because they're going to be trained by us. They're going to be, uh, they're going to stay there. So there's a cost related to that. So it's brand new. It's, uh, to be honest with you, it's not easy because it's new. But like Kim was saying, it's essential that it's a focus and, and a, an important issue for everybody. And the committee was really uh, centered on about Indigenous and First Nation uh, uh, implication in this kind of uh, investment. I'm reminded of something that the National Chief Perry Bellegarde has said numerous times on, 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 on my stage of 2020, and I'm assuming anywhere else as well, that before you build anything, build a relationship. Um, I, I'm mindful of time here, and, and so I, I want to wrap up, and I want to hopefully wrap up on a bit more of an optimistic note. Um, Kim, simple question to you. Uh, when you take a look around, when you take a look at your sector after you've done lots of consultations and, and, and lots of listening, what are you optimistic about? I'm, in, I'm eternally optimistic. 
I just think this is why this is why I was very excited that you were going to be on. This is why. <laughs> well, because I sometimes think that we we create what comes from our own optimism uh, by virtue of necessity, and the pandemic that we are going through. There is no question; uh, it has taken such a toll on so many Canadians, uh, no matter where they live, their circumstances. Some much more challenging than others, and. I truly believe that that there have been a number of things that have been created and I'm going to see created because they never existed before, whether it was a CERB or the SUE, again, going back to the acronyms, those sort of immediate programs that were able to help Canadians pay their rent, put food on the table and spend that money in our economy, which helped our local businesses um, continue to certainly not uh, flourish. Uh, for the most part, but at least able to keep their foot on the gas in, in a um, you know, sort of an idling, managing um, uh, sort of situation. I'm optimistic because this is not the first time Canadians have, or, or, or the world, in fact, have had to deal with challenges that were at one time almost inconceivable. Our advantage of Canada is that we are a country, we're a democratic country, we have, as we talked about, vast natural resources that I think give us one of the biggest leverages um, that there is. I also think at the end of the day, no matter the differences across the country or within sectors, the end result is that we need to pull together to make this work. And yes, there's always going to be things people want governments to do that they're not going to do or not be able to do, but I think we're all reasonable people. And I have faith that we will, as uh, Michelle said, you know, be able to sit down, build those relationships and move us forward. Because I think we, we have an opportunity here. Many countries around the world are seeing the opportunities that we are in different spaces. And Canada's leading in some of them right now. But we're not going to be leading in them if we don't keep pushing forward. And I think that's the, the biggest message I can send is that we just can't take our foot off the gas. Michelle, last word to you. What, uh, what are you optimistic about right now? Uh, because of the opportunity. I think the pandemic uh, gave us the opportunity to realize to uh, what our life was uh, before the pandemic. And that's a personal opinion. We were... Uh, working all the time, uh, working with the silo vision, I think. And the pandemic, I think, bring a lot of hard thing, but I think it bring a brighter perspective about other people, uh, our restaurant, about the economy. A lot of stuff that we took for granted now are being uh, challenged and reflected in our position. So right now, I think people are mo more open-minded to have a discussion, having a reflection, and to we have an opportunity to do stuff better because people are willing to do stuff better. So I'm all happy. I know it's a lot of uh, bad feeling about the pandemic, a lot of injury and that, but at the same time, we have to do something good from it. And like Kim was saying, I see a lot of opportunity and we have the privilege to have a lot of uh, tools in our hand. It's just to have a discussion, build confidence and to build a plan. So 
it's um, a time of opportunity for me. Michelle Trapanier, uh, Kim Rudd, thank you both very much for joining me today. Um, I really appreciate you uh, talking not only about your the task force report, but also bringing life, I think, to some of these issues that often feel, I think, distant for uh, for us. I mean, it's it's hard to sort of get a bead on um, how quickly the news is moving in a lot of different sectors and in a lot of different spaces. And people, I think, are thinking a lot about their own health and their own well-being and their family and whatnot. But it's it was nice to be able to take some time and talk about what change and transformation and opportunities there are in um in a, in a really vital part of, of, of the Canadian economy and also, you know, just in general Canada. So, uh, Kim, Michelle, thank you very much for your time. I look forward to chatting with you both again. Thank you. Thank you. Take care, Alex. Bye, Michelle. Thanks so much for listening. Today's show was brought to you by the 2020 Network presented by Interac, which is a production of Canada 2020, Canada's leading independent progressive think tank. This episode was produced by Mira Ahmad, edited by Aaron Reynolds, with production support from Carolyn Smith. I'm your host, Alex Patterson. Remember to rate and review us in the iTunes store, and if you'd like, subscribe to some of our other shows, like the newly launched At Risk with host Jody Butts, or Open to Debate with David Mosscrop. Thanks very much for listening. Talk to you soon.